Welcome everybody to the Citizens Climate Lobby National Meeting. I'm Madeline Perra, and I have the honor of being your host today. Nathaniel Stinnett is our guest speaker and I'll introduce him in a minute and we'll go over the action sheet for the month and share some updates and leave you plenty of time for your group meetings. So Nathaniel Stinnett is the founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. He's no stranger to CCL. We've had him as a guest speaker at this meeting before, and lots of you have volunteered with EVP as part of your CCL work to build the political will for a healthy climate. With the midterm elections approaching, we decided it would be a good time for folks who are newer to CCL to hear from him. And for those of you who are already familiar with the Environmental Voter Project to get an update on their plans for this year and how you can help. Nathaniel, I know you don't really need an introduction to us, I think you already know that our volunteers are people who have learned to dig deep within themselves to stay optimistic and in action. One of their favorite statements is by Alex Steffen called Optimism as a Political Act. And I'm gonna read two paragraphs by him. Steffen wrote, entrenched interest youth, despair, confusion, and apathy to prevent change. They encourage modes of thinking, which lead us to believe that problems are unsolvable, that nothing we do can matter, that the issue is too complex to present even the opportunity for change. Cynicism is often seen as a rebellious attitude in Western popular culture, but in reality, cynicism is the attitude exactly most likely to conform to the desires of the powerful. Cynicism is obedience. Optimism, by contrast, especially optimism, which is neither foolish nor silent, can be revolutionary. Where no one believes in a better future, despair is a logical choice. People in despair almost never change anything. Where no one believes a better solution is possible, those benefiting from the continuation of a problem are safe. Where no one believes in the possibility of action, apathy becomes an insurmountable obstacle to reform but introduce intelligent reasons for believing that action is possible, that better solutions are available and that a better future can be built. And you unleash the power of people to act out of their highest principles. Shared belief in a better future is the strongest glue there is. It creates the opportunity for us to love one another and love is an explosive force in politics. Great movements for social change always begin with statements of great optimism. So Nathaniel, the people in this meeting are people who resist cynicism. And I wanna reread this part of the quote because in my mind, you and EVP embody Stefan's words. Introduce intelligent reasons for believing that action is possible, that better solutions are available and that a better future can be built and you unleash the power of people to act out of their highest principles. So welcome to our monthly meeting. It's such a pleasure to have you back and I'll turn it over to you now, Nathaniel. Oh my gosh, Madeline, that was just such an extraordinarily kind uh, introduction. And coming from you and Brett and Todd and Flannery and everybody at CCL makes it that much more special. Uh, the amount of respect that I have for all of you uh, as, as energetic and kind and dedicated and powerful climate activists is, is truly unbounded. And so just 
thank you for those extraordinarily kind words. Thank you for the work that all of you, and I mean all of you on this call, do every day as part of CCL, working with EVP, but also just in your daily lives. We all know these problems are enormous, but I think we also know that the only way we can surmount these problems is together. And so just thank you for being here as well to learn more about the work that we do at the Environmental Voter Project. So with that, I am gonna get started because I promised Madeline that I would stay to the, the allotted time. So I'm going to start by sharing my screen. I know uh, because the CCL folks are such amazing giving volunteers that many of you are familiar with our work at the Environmental Voter Project, but some of you aren't. And even those of you who are familiar, maybe you could use a very, very quick reintroduction. And so the way my presentation is going to go today is I'm going to start with a very, very quick introduction or reintroduction to the Environmental Voter Project, but it will only be very quick. And so for those of you who want more details, I encourage you to please, please visit our website. We've got an enormous amount of information there. Then we're going to go into our recent results, and then we're gonna to get to the really important stuff, which are volunteer opportunities over the next four months, and then we will have a Q&A session. So without further ado, let's jump on in. The Environmental Voter Project is a nonpartisan nonprofit that is a laser focused just on this. We identify non-voting environmentalists, and then we turn them into better voters. That's it. What that also means is we don't do a lot of stuff that your typical environmental groups or even atypical environmental groups uh, do do. So for instance, we don't endorse candidates. We don't lobby for particular policies. We don't even, as odd as it might sound, try to persuade people to care more about climate or the environment. A good way to think about us at EVP is that we're not even in the mind-changing game. Instead, we are solely in the behavior-changing business. We find people who don't need their minds changed. They don't need to be educated on climate or the environment. They're already with us. In fact, we identify people who care so deeply about climate and other environmental issues that it is their number one priority over all others. But they're not voting. And so what that means is that these people are ripe for a purely behavioral intervention. And what that allows us to do is bypass the hardest, stickiest, most expensive part of politics, which is changing minds and changing opinions, and go right to the slightly easier and certainly cheaper part, which is changing behavior. And so again, I'm going to just very, very quickly describe how we do that and then get to the gist of this presentation, which is what are some of our results and how can you get involved? Because I know we all have midterms on the brains these days. So very quickly, the reason we are doing this at the Environmental Voter Project is because we have identified that the climate movement and the broader environmental movement has a huge turnout problem. Going all the way back to 2016, you can see over 10 million already registered voters, they're already registered, who list climate and the environment as their top priority, just stayed at home and didn't cast a ballot in an election that was decided by 77,000 votes. 
As you can see, in midterm elections, the numbers are even higher. And going into the midterm election that is now uh, one day less than four months away, looking at public voter files, we have identified over 13 million already registered voters who care deeply about climate and the environment, yet they have never voted in a midterm election before. And although I can't see all your faces, I imagine some of you are now shaking your heads saying, oh my gosh, are you serious? All of these environmentalists aren't voting? And I get it, it can be frustrating, but I encourage you to see it as an opportunity as well because we live at a moment in time where it's become almost impossible to change people's minds. And what this 13 plus million represent is an enormous potential pool of political power that doesn't need their minds changed. They just need their behavior changed. And again, as I said, I won't claim that's easy. Of course it's not, but it is easier than changing people's opinions or changing their minds. And so that's why the Environmental Voter Project is laser focused on this very narrow yet enormous opportunity. And that is finding already persuaded, died in the wool environmentalists who don't vote and then turning them into better and ultimately more consistent federal, state, and even local voters. How do we do it? Very quickly, it's a three-step process. First, we poll tens of thousands of people per state. These are enormous polls. We ask people what their number one priority is, and then we isolate the people who tell us climate and the environment's their top priority. And we work with data scientists to try to find more people like that. And it's a long convoluted process that we don't have time to get into today. But the end result is we build what's called predictive models on voter files. And these are kind of similar to actuarial tables that insurance companies build. What these, these models do is they help us find all the other super environmentalists who are out there in each state and literally find them as individuals on voter files. And obviously we don't have 100% certainty that every person we have modeled as an environmentalist is one, but we have like 85 to 100% certainty. These are frighteningly accurate models. And when we find these super environmentalists, then we don't need data scientists to tell us which ones of them vote and which ones don't. That's public record. You can run to your local city hall and town hall and figure out who votes and who doesn't. And that leaves us this second step, mobilization. Once we have found these millions of super environmentalists who don't vote, well then we can be completely agnostic with our messaging. I mean, as some of you have probably heard me say before, at that point, we could talk about chocolate chip cookies if that's how you get people to vote. Because we already know these people don't need to be educated. They don't need to care more about our issue. They just need to start voting more often. And so we've got thousands of volunteers who canvas and call and mail and send digital ads to these non-voting environmentalists. And we run hundreds of randomized control trials each year telling us which messages work best to just do one thing, and that is change their behavior and turn them into better voters. And then finally, we work year round to build the good habits of voting. Although we all know that there is a very, very important set of elections coming up, I wanna to be totally honest and say that the Environmental Voter Project spends most of our time working in completely 
objectively unimportant elections. We were active, as I'll soon show you, in, over, in almost 400 elections last year, an odd year. And I can guarantee you most of them had nothing to do with environmental policymaking. But all of them were important if what you're trying to do is change behavior. Because surprise, surprise, even if you're not a behavioral scientist, I bet you can figure out that if all you do is parachute in once every two years when there's a big sexy federal election going on, you can't change people's behavior. And so when we find these non-voting environmentalists, we use every election, big and small, to turn them into consistent voters. All right, how has this process worked? Well, as I mentioned, thanks in part to many of all of your great work, because we had dozens of phone banks that were run by CCL volunteers last year in 2021. We had hundreds, I think close to 200, CCL members volunteer with the Environmental Voter Project last year. Thanks to you, we were active in almost 400 elections. And we got some amazing results. And before I show them to you, though, I just want to give you some background as to the uh, scientific rigor that goes into calculating our impact in these elections. We run what's called randomized control trials. And very briefly, what that means is, let's say we identify a million people in Florida who are unlikely to vote in a midterm election. What we do not do is immediately start canvassing and calling and mailing all million of them. Instead, our first step is to randomly, randomly divide that group into two parts, a treatment group and a control group. That control group, we set aside and we never talk to those environmentalists. The treatment group, we call. We canvas, we mail, we send digital ads. Then the election happens. Remember what I said a few minutes ago? Whether you vote or not is public record. And so a few months after each election, we look at public voter files and we can see how many people in our treatment group voted and compare that to how many of these low propensity environmentalists in our control group that we did not talk to voted. And what that allows us to do is isolate what our sole impact was on turnout while controlling for all outside variables. Because even if a presidential campaign spends $10 billion, well, we control for that. Unless they break into our database and decide to only spend that $10 billion on our treatment group, we have controlled for that. And just last year, as you can see, we were solely responsible for boosting turnout as much as four percentage points in special congressional races and local elections, as much as 0.8 percentage points in statewide primaries, and as much as 1.2 percentage points in statewide general elections, including that 0.9 that you see in Georgia there, which was from those two US Senate runoffs. And these numbers might not seem that big to people who aren't often involved in politics, but these are huge numbers in the election business. Moreover, over the long term, we at EVP and over the past six years have now communicated with 8.6 million unique individuals, all of whom by definition were unlikely to vote or else we wouldn't be talking to them. And what we could see in voter files tracking them is by the end of last year, over 1,030,000 of them had become such consistent voters that they had voted in their most recent federal election their most recent state election, and their most recent local election. 
Now, to be clear, this long-term metric is not as rigorous as the randomized control trials I was telling you about. I can't claim that we are solely responsible for turning 1 million non-voters into super voters. But we're pretty darn responsible. I can promise you there's no other organization going around the dog catcher and library trustee elections getting these non-voters to become more consistent voters. And I hope this is something that all of you who have volunteered with EVP in the past take real pride in. Because these people do a lot of the same type of work that you do with CCL. These people build political power for climate policymaking. Because believe me, there is nothing, nothing that motivates a politician more than the prospect of winning or losing an election. And when we can start flooding the electorate with more and more environmentalists, boy, does that make it easier for us to get climate leadership. All right. Heading into the 2022 midterms, what do we see at EVP? Well, we are active in these 17 states. We are targeting 5.8 million of these super environmentalists who are already registered to vote, yet have never voted in a midterm election or an election of lower turnout than a midterm. So what that means is 5.8 million already registered super environmentalists who are currently unlikely to vote. This is the breakdown by state. And just to give you an idea of what these columns mean, let's take a look at Arizona. We at EVP are targeting, and when I say we're targeting, we've already removed our control group. So we're actually communicating with 249,841 super environmentalists in Arizona who are registered, yet they've never voted in a midterm. But we wanted to provide you with some context. So what does 249,000 mean in a state like Arizona? Well, if we look at the last midterm election in 2018, fewer than 2.4 million ballots were cast in Arizona. So what that means is our target universe in Arizona is so large that it is equal to 10.5% of all ballots that were actually cast last time there was a midterm election in the state. And I won't go through all 17 states here, but I do just want to highlight some of the ones that might just maybe be on all of your minds. These are some states where there are going to be enormous policymaking consequences up and down the ballot, but I just only had room to put in the federal stuff here. And you'll see EVP's target populations in some of these states are huge. I mean, over 714,000 super environmentalists in Pennsylvania who have never voted in a midterm. And not to get creepy, but like we literally know them by name and street address. And we've run hundreds of randomized control trials telling us which messages work best over which communication channels with which subpopulations of these super environmentalists. It's nonpartisan messaging, but it is optimized to do one thing, and that is change their behavior and get them to vote. And so as we are heading into the next four months, we at the Environmental Voter Project would really, really welcome your involvement. You can visit environmentalvoter.org slash get involved, and you'll see it's really easy to sign up to phone bank or Canvas. All of the training is provided. You show up online. If you're already trained, we can get you started. If you need training, we will give you the messaging. We will tell you what to download. We will give you the script. You can do it from the comfort of your own home knowing 
that behavioral scientists have submitted the messaging to randomized control trials, and we know that it's going to work. If you want to volunteer with your CCL group, you can contact our national organizing director, Shannon Siegel. She's at shannon at environmentalvoter.org. And we would love to set something up for you to do it as a group, either in person or online. And certainly, if you're more interested in our results and our studies and stories about us and stuff like that, please go to environmentalvoter.org. And I'm one minute over, so I'm going to quickly close. I'll say some of you aren't in one of our 17 states, or some of you might not be able to do some of the things that I just listed, even if you are in one of our states. And take it from someone who spends hours each day living the behavioral science of how to turn non-voters into voters. The best, the single best thing you can do over the next four months is use your social influence. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean like tweet a lot, although that's fine. I mean, human beings are much more social animals than we are rational animals. And at any given moment, you have friends and neighbors and congregation members and coworkers who look to you for cues as to what is appropriate behavior, what's appropriate as an environmentalist, what's appropriate as a good neighbor, what's appropriate as a good parent or a good child. And you need to be loud and proud about the fact that you are a voter more than anything, more than your most compelling rational argument about why it's important to vote. Simply letting everybody know that you are going to vote is important. And I'm sure I don't need to remind you of the stakes because four months from today, we are all going to wake up and be reading about the election results. And I know that you don't wanna have any regrets. I know you want to have done all that you can. And so please join us. We would love to help you make sure that every environmentalist votes this year. And I really, really look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you so much, Nathaniel. Um, boy, really inspiring, really clear. I, I have one question for you while folks are uh, putting their questions into the Q&A and Flannery's looking through them just to start out. You know, I'm sure you run into people who are cynical sometimes about voting. What do, what do you say to folks when they're like, ah, oh, my vote doesn't matter? Yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like, and not just because you led with that Alex Steffen quote, uh, Madeline, <laughs> you know, I, I almost feel like, you, you know, cynicism and optimism can can almost be a circle in politics where where if you get cynical enough, you'll you'll land right back into a place of optimism. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if you're cynical about politics, you probably have a lot of good reason to be. You probably look at politicians and you end up thinking, gosh, you know, they just do whatever it takes to win elections. And I can't actually argue with that. I think you're right. I think if deep down you believe that politicians pretty much do what it takes to win elections, you're not wrong. But what I would say to you is, that actually reveals just how important voting and volunteering is. Because yes, the brutal arithmetic of democracy means if you don't get 50% plus one of the vote on a Tuesday in November, you don't get to be a politician anymore. You don't get to be a policymaker anymore. And what that means is that voters have all the power. Now, obviously I'm not naive enough to think that 
corporate money doesn't influence things. Of course it does. And gerrymandering influences things. But at the end of the day, politicians go where the votes are. They go where the votes are or they don't get to be politicians anymore. And what that means is it always comes back to us. So vote, but also volunteer to get other people to vote. Because I know all of us think about this like every hour of every day, but most Americans don't. Most Americans make up their mind whether they're gonna vote or not over the next three and a half months. And so that's why now more than ever, we need to be optimistic about our ability to get them in the game. Because if we do, we can change everything. We absolutely can. Wow. I'm going to listen to that again later so I can have it handy in my brain. Thank you. <laughs> Flannery, what are you seeing? All right. So we have a question uh, here from Linda, which I've seen a couple other people also uh, ask variations on this question. Um, she's saying, having canvassed billions of voters over the last 20 years, I, have, I see fewer and fewer people willing to answer their phones or talk to me if they do answer. Are you seeing this trend and how can we break through this trend? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, yes, reaching people over the phone is getting harder. Uh, a lot of people can see who's calling them now, whether it's on their cell phone or their landline, and so they don't pick up. And so contact rates are going down. But here's how we can uh, combat that. One, we at the Environmental Voter Project use a predictive dialer. A lot of organizations use predictive dialers. And so you don't waste time if people don't pick up. It's a computer that just cycles through really, 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 really fast until someone's, someone picks up. All right, but then how can you combat the, uh, the, the problem that people pick up and they're like, oh, this is about politics, forget it, and, and, and hang up. Because yes, that, that is also, the questioner is right, that is also happening more often. One of the keys to part of the reason we have such a high contact rate and actual conversation rate with voters is because we are completely nonpartisan. And I would even go further, we're completely apolitical. Remember what I said. I mean, the, the fact that we identify people whose number one priority is climate change allows us to be totally agnostic with our messaging. And so other than saying we're calling from the Environmental Voter Project, we actually don't even talk about climate. Not because we don't like to talk about it. We, we love to talk about it. It just doesn't work. And so one of the ways that we get people to get into conversations with us happens to also be a behavioral science informed way to actually change their behavior. And that is simply ask them, this is what our canvassers and our callers do, simply ask them if they intend to vote. And remember, we're only calling people who we know don't vote. Yet, there's this weird behavioral science trick where if you ask people if they intend to do something that deep down they know society views as important, a lot of them are gonna say, oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll totally do that. And that is a really easy ask. Can I guarantee that people never hang up on our volunteers? No, people hang up on our volunteers all the time, but we have a much, much higher conversation rate. And it's really valuable and impactful because if we can get these non-voters to promise that they will vote, that then allows us to close the deal right before the election. We follow up with them and we say, hey, I just wanna remind you back in July, you told us that you were gonna vote and Tuesday is your opportunity to follow through on your promise. And boy, is it much more powerful when you equate the act of voting with whether someone's an honest promise keeper. 
That's how we not only keep people on the line or at the door talking to us, but how we also get them to cast ballots. Interesting. Well, that, that might answer uh, the next question I was going to ask. Uh, John was asking, can you tell us more about proven voter turnout messaging in the language that you use? So it sounds like that's, you've covered that, unless there's anything else that you, uh, any other tricks you have up your sleeve there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, there are a million tricks, so I won't get into them, but let me talk about sort of one broad theoretical framework and then one more just sort of specific thing. Broadly speaking, it is important, and I say this standing on the shoulders of giants, like a generation of behavioral science, uh, science researchers. Broadly speaking, the most successful strategies seek out a societal norm that you think your target buys into and then tries to leverage that. So what are some examples? Peer pressure. We have sent text messages to people simply saying, hey, Flannery, did you know last time there was an election, 127 of your neighbors on Main Street turned out to vote? That's it, that's it, just peer pressure. But stuff like that works. And so looking for that norm that people buy into, do you think you're, the person you're messaging to wants to be thought of as a good father or a good neighbor or a good member of your congregation? We'll use that, equate that in a very normative way to being a voter. And then the final thing I'll just mention because we're really excited about it because we got great results with it last year is taking advantage of a psychological technique called loss aversion. Very quickly, the idea behind loss aversion is most behavioral economists have figured out that we fear losing $5 more than we get excited about the prospect of getting $5. We fear losing things. How does that fit into the voting context? Well, there are a lot of people who vote in presidential elections, but don't vote in other elections and a lot of environmentalists. And so we message to them, and instead of making voting in a midterm seem like a new thing that they need to try for the first time, we flip the script and we, we have a loss aversion message where we say, thank you for being a good voter in 2020. Don't ruin your good voting record in 2022. The idea is if you don't vote in a midterm, which by the way, you've never done or we wouldn't be talking to you, it means you will lose something. You will lose something precious. Don't do it. Don't screw up your perfect voting record, Flannery. And oh my gosh, that sends turnout through the roof because now we're endowing people with this value they didn't even know that they had. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess I, I did vote in 2020. I don't want to screw that up. And so little nudges like this. And if you go to our website, we've got a lot of our reports and studies up there. Uh, but we test everything, even really like weird things because who knows what will work. Interesting. That's super cool. Um, Madeline, do we have uh, time for one more? We are out of time, but the way that makes that bearable, because this is fascinating, is that I know that Nathaniel's already agreed that he'll come back for a Q&A session on one of our Thursday night webinars. And uh, I think I'm going to listen to every word. I understand now why the last one was one of our most highest all-time viewed <laughs> recordings. So thank you so much again, Nathaniel. Uh, really, really enlightening and hopeful. Um, you are, of course, very welcome to hang on and listen to the next 10 or 15 minutes of this call. But I understand you have some interesting household chores to do today. Um, so that's completely up to you. Well, thank you, Madeline. Thank you, Flannery and Brett and Todd and, and everybody. Uh, it is always a pleasure to be with CCL. So thank you. Uh, it was a total delight to have you. Great, thank you.
Okay, everybody. Well, let's talk about action now. Um, first, the actions this month, and then with a few of my favorite examples of your power from last month. So I, and you could probably tell by having been so excited about Nathaniel talking here, I believe the most important thing that you can do in your communities for the next five months is to focus on doing exactly what he's asking, on getting environmentally minded people to vote in large numbers and getting candidates to conclude that many, many voters want climate action. So our two suggested actions for this month are one, encourage environmental voters to vote by working with EVP and in other ways. And two, use the media to get your concern about climate change into the public discourse. I also wanna talk a minute about the communications exercise. I enjoyed being at my Madison chapter for a little bit before coming over to my computer and they were talking about CBAMs and that is what the communication exercise is all about because they're kind of hard to figure out how to get them to roll off your tongue. CBAMs, that stands for Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanisms. And uh, we're encouraging you to start practicing now how to talk simply and confidently about these carbon border adjustment mechanisms. And one way to do that is to cite, recite our suggested wording uh, more than once, multiple times, and work out ways you can comfortably say it in your own words uh, so that ultimately it rolls off your tongue. So a few statements about CBAMs that you could practice that are in the communication skills exercise are one, many members of Congress are interested in discussing and possibly enacting a carbon border adjustment mechanism as a way to level the international playing field for US manufacturers. To expand on that, you could say, to protect US manufacturers and jobs, a carbon border adjustment mechanism would charge a fee for carbon emitting fuels and carbon intensive goods that are imported from countries that don't have a carbon emissions reduction program. And if you want, you could go on to a third sentence and practice, our major trading partners are already implementing CBAMs, including the European Union and possibly Canada in the near future. These countries account for 1.8 trillion in trade with the US at last count, so we need to pay attention to it. You know, back in my early days at CCL, I used to practice how to talk about carbon fee and dividend as a three-legged stool and to get to where I could do that without needing any notes. And that kind of thing is hard for me, um, but I did get better with a lot of practice. So now it's all about figuring out how to talk well about carbon border adjustment mechanisms. And I look forward to hearing examples from you. So on to my favorite part of these calls, which is what you've been doing out there. Well, first of all, the national conference. Um, I came back with so much energy after our first in-person national conference last month, the first one since 2019. I, as you can imagine, uh, you know, if you were there or if you, you can imagine if you weren't there, it just felt terrific to be in a ballroom full of CCL energy once again. So thank you for all the hugs. 527 people attended in person. I think I hugged 200 of them. And 835 participated remotely on Zoom and I wish I could have hugged a bunch of them. So altogether, the conference touched 1,363 people live and lots more are watching the recordings. One volunteer wrote to us that watching the conference relit the spark of optimism in him. I have to say, me too. Another had this to say about the speakers. It was so affirming to hear from speaker after speaker that CCL is greatly respected 
that our values distinguish us from other organizations and that our work has made a difference. And we heard lots of encouragement to keep on. Well, of course, you were lobbying Congress in June also. So far, we've received 284 meeting reports. And I know some of you have meetings that were put off to this month. So carry on and please be sure to send in those meeting reports. Our team in DC relies on them. And as you know, we left it up to you to determine whether to meet in DC on the Hill right after the conference or to meet in district or on Zoom. It looks like 84 meetings were held on the Hill, and I think that's fantastic. I don't think any other group trusts its volunteers the way we do to, to schedule and plan their own meetings. And over and over again, you validate that trust. And did you have an impact? Yes, you did, and here's how we know. Jen Tyler, who's uh, part of our staff on the Hill, CCL, CCL staff uh, team member, she heard from several congressional staff, people who are uh, staffed to the chief sponsors of the bills that we asked you to lobby on. And, those staff, and, and Jen heard uh, from those staffers that in the last few weeks, they suddenly received a lot of outreach from other congressional offices who were interested in learning more or co-sponsoring the bills. And the staffers were kind of confused as to why they were suddenly getting so much interest in the bills until they realized that CCL had just had our lobby week. So yes, you had an impact and you further built our reputation on the Hill. So please keep up that fantastic work and be sure, say it again, to file the meeting reports if you haven't yet so that our own Hill staff can amplify your work. A few other things I wanna share with you. I wanna congratulate the North Winds region for getting on the road last month in North Dakota and holding a tour and mini conference on energy and agriculture. You know, North Dakota is the heart of energy country. And uh, this is some of what regional coordinator Mindy Aller reported to me. She said in North Dakota, the surrounding area uh, to, of where they were having their event included oil wells, coal mines and coal power plants, a hydroelectric dam, a corn ethanol plant, wind turbines and solar panels, as well as research on carbon capture and sequestration and on geothermal combined heat and power. People came from many parts of the state of North Dakota to participate. CCL volunteers who are part of our virtual statewide chapter there were able to meet each other in person for the first time, and I'm sure they love that. And there were a bunch of attendees, including panelists, that weren't familiar with CCL before the event that are now potential allies and experts. So it was a great success. And Mindy tells me that this couldn't have been possible with help from CCLers in neighboring Minnesota in particular, and I love you for that. All right. So as many of you know, I've been working hard on myself to keep perspective in the face of so many tragic and frightening events in our news. So I wanted you to see this picture from Ann Arbor CCL. It was picked up by our national CCL Twitter account and seeing them in their 4th of July parade float, I have to say it eased my pain over the Highland Park shootings that were near my hometown on the 4th. And it helped me remember that most parades were joyful experiences for the participants. So just beautiful picture from Ann Arbor CCL. You know, there's an in-person theme in a lot of these stories. On Tuesday's group leader call, I asked the 115 folks in attendance about your current meeting practices using a Zoom poll. And I learned that 37% of you are holding in-person or hybrid chapter meetings. 77% of you are meeting in person for social or action-oriented activities. 
and 41% of you prefer meeting online at this point. You know, I've watched the group leaders of my own chapter navigate the twists and turns of the pandemic with such thoughtfulness, and I really loved getting a little time with them in person just now before I had time to get on, had to go get on my computer to talk with all of you. The pandemic has been hard on our chapter growth in a lot of places. So I wanna remind you of the resource that's offered to you by the weekly informational session that Kaylee Roach and her team, they hold it live every Wednesday evening. Early in the year, they revamped the session and have been collecting feedback from participants. So this number caught my eye. 95% of those respondents plan to join their local chapter and attend the meetings. 95% plan to join their local chapter and attend the meetings. So if you're looking to grow your chapter, you might encourage folks to attend this call if they can or use the recording. And then likewise, uh, I, I just I have to comment on the audacity and courageous work of our volunteers around the world. It reminds me of the words of Alex Stefan uh, that I quoted at the outset, this part, shared belief in a better future is the strongest glue there is. Citizens Climate International has some powerful glue. Their most recent success was to deliver 1,994 letters from 80 countries to the leaders of the G7 nations at their recent message with a message to steer us to safety. How did they do it? Well, a rural group in Kenya secured almost 50 letters from their country, Nigeria, over 100 letters, India, almost 100 letters. Citizens Climate International staffer David Michael in Africa coordinated the work across that continent. One brand new person in Denmark got almost 20 letters all by himself. And the fact that we got so many different countries, 80 countries, that's because a lot of our CCI group leaders reached directly out to friends in other countries. So I just have to say, I'm humbled by what you do, CCI, and how the human relationships that you have make so much possible, especially in places where money and technological resources are scarce. You're a model to us all. So in closing, I just have to come back to that shared belief quote by Alex Stefan and give you the rest of it. Shared belief in a better future is the strongest glue there is. It creates the opportunity for us to love one another and love is an explosive force in politics. You, the people on this call and in your groups, you're the people who will help this country move from fear to love. You might feel small in the face of that challenge. I know I do but I'm confident it's within our collective power because it's part of our human nature. And I thank you for that. So have a great month, everybody.
for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.